Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, has its own history. Like pizzas, ladders and tongues. Oh, gonna... I want to do ladders and tongues very soon, Sam. I think we need to get back to some of our, you know, some of our, our homegrown stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, we will, however, be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of ribbons is in fact all about orphans in Georgian and Victorian Britain? Or that the history of sisters is all about power in Tudor England? Uh, the man not sitting opposite me because we're social distancing, he will help pilot us through this wonderful historical world. He's one of the country's leading professors of history. It's Professor Extraordinaire James Daybell. Hi, James. Hello, Sam. And the man not sitting opposite me, but ably helping me co-pilot this episode, is the famous historical adventurer himself, Dr Sam Willis. Hello, Sam. Hi, everyone. Um, this is another episode of our special homeschooling series. And in each episode, we take a subject that I bet you don't think has a history. We prove that it does. And today we're doing the history of uncles. Great fun. Which is all about the reign of Edward VI. But before... We talk about that. Let's have a little think about how else we might do the history of uncles, James. Oh, uncles are fascinating. I mean, what the history of Edward VI is all about is because he's a young boy in his minority. So the uncle is very powerful. And there are other examples of powerful uncles in history. Take Richard III, for example, who who took power um, and he deposed King Edward uh, V of England uh, and set himself up and then the two princes were put in the tower and nobody knows what happened to them and it's thought that he, he maybe, Richard III, maybe bumped them off so that he could rule. But then also we can think about uncles in terms of the history of the family and uncles in terms of kinship networks, so those members of the family, members of the extended family, and the kinds of roles and responsibilities that they might play. And we can think about, you know, the kind of duty, obligation that uncles had uh, to other family members, to nephews and nieces. And we can have a look at the kinds of roles that they might play in looking after children in the event of parental deaths. And if we think about history over a long period of time, the earlier we go back in the past, this these sort of kinship figures, these un uncle figures, uncles and aunts and grandparents are incredibly important because people would have lived within these close kin units. But, 
as we move into the late medieval and early modern periods of the 16th and 17th century and beyond, what we see is a declining importance of kin and the role of uncles. And in fact, the rise of the nuclear family, the nuclear family being uh, two parents and and their offspring and their, and their kids. And so that's something that we see declining. And historians have shown that the pre-industrial family isn't actually a family of grandparents, aunts, uncles and cousins living under one roof. In fact, it's very much the nuclear family. And we can see the importance of uncles in diaries and letters and writings from the period. Take this example from Samuel Pepys's diary on the 27th of May, 1663. Samuel Pepys is a very famous 17th century diarist, very big in the Navy as well. Um, uh, he writes... Here at Westminster Hall, I met with my cousin Roger Pepys and walked a good while with him, and among other discourse, as a secret he hath committed to nobody yet but himself. He tells me that his sister Claxton, now resolving to give over the keeping of his house at Impington, he thinks it fit to marry again, and would have me, by the help of my uncle White or others, to look him out a widow between thirty or forty years old, without children, and with a fortune which he will answer in any degree with a jointure fit to her fortune. So what this shows you is here the importance of Uncle White to actually help um, Roger Pepys find a wife for him. So you can see the kinds of roles that historical uncles in the past might have played, very important social roles. So there we go, Sam, a couple of examples of thinking about historical uncles. What have you got for us? Um, well, I was looking through some photos this morning and I found some photos of when I was filming in Malindi in, um, in Kenya, in, in East Africa. And it made me think about um, early contacts between Europeans and um, locals there. And particularly there's the Bartonga people from Portuguese East Africa. The Portuguese are very important in East Africa because they're the first Europeans to reach it. They arrive in 1498. Anyway, it leads to... Um, a great deal of interest in the um, the people who were living in in Africa when the when um, the European Europeans arrived, and one of the things that was noticed is how the kinship relationships um, of these African tribesmen was different, very significantly different to how uh, European societies worked. And the one of the key things is the importance of um, the mother's brother, so a maternal uncle. And there are just some key points here which is noted noted about how this played out in Portuguese Afri East Africa. The nephew, all through his career, is the object of special care on the part of his uncle. When the nephew is sick, the mother's brother sacrifices on his behalf. The nephew is permitted to take many liberties with his mother's brother. For example, he may go into his uncle's home and eat up the food that has been prepared for the latter's meal. The nephew claims some of the property of his mother's brother when the latter dies and may sometimes claim one of the widows. And when the mother's brother offers a sacrifice to his ancestors, the sister's son steals and consumes the portion of meat or beer offered to the gods. So just a little window there to make you realise that the way that we might understand family relationships is fundamentally different in different parts of the world and has also changed throughout history. I also found some wonderful history, James, about um, the phrase Uncle Sam rel um, relating to uh, it's like a nickname for the US government. 
and there's a little story here that that it, it, it went back to the War of 1812. And um, one Samuel Wilson, who, along with his older brother Ebenezer, supplied the army with meat. And the Wilsons employed as many as 200 people, including lots of relatives who'd moved to Troy. And the nieces and nephews referred there to Sam Wilson as Uncle Sam um, because he had a, 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 his friendly, easygoing nature. Um, so it's like a, a, a friendly term of being an uncle. And due to confusion over the meaning of the abbreviation US for United States, which was stamped on army barrels and supply wagons, the nickname supposedly migrated from the Wilsons and their supplying of meat to the army all the way to the federal government in 1812. I'm not sure if that's true, James. There are all sorts of other theories, but I thought it was rather a splendid one. Anyway, today we are going to be talking about uncles, particularly in terms of powerful kin relationships at the Tudor court, and with particular focus on Edward VI, who uh, is the son of Henry VIII. I'm going to start by talking about an extract from Edward VI's diary, in which he describes the death of his father and how he receives it. Uh, he receives news of it from his uncle, the Earl of Hertford. Well, who is Edward VI? Well, he born in 1537, October, and died in July 1553. And he was King of England and Ireland from the 28th of January 1547 until his death. And the key thing about Edward is that he was crowned uh, at the age of just nine. And in this extract, he reveals that he and his sister, Elizabeth, um, learns of their father, Henry VIII's death from his uncle, Edward Seymour, the Earl of Hertford. And he finds out about this at Elizabeth's uh, house in Enfield on the 30th of January, 1547. He writes that it causes grief in London, but he, he reveals nothing at all about his own personal feelings. It's, you know, this is his dad that's died, but he doesn't mention his personal feelings. He talks about the Privy Council's choice of Edward Seymour as protector and governor of the king's person. So Edward Seymour is the man who's going to be taking charge while Edward is a youngster and he can't be a king himself. And he also mentions how his father's officers broke their staffs of office and threw them into Henry's grave at his burial. Um, this is a diary, but it's not necessarily what we might consider to be a diary. We think that actually he was prompted to write this by one of his tutors. Uh, it begins with the description of his childhood all the way up until 1547. Now, between 1547 and 1549, the diary is actually a chronicle of past events um, that refers to Edward in the third person. Um, so it, it, it's not written um, sort of through Edward's eyes. But from March 1550 until November 1552, when it ends, it's much more like a diary as we would understand it with entries for individual days. Anyway, here we are. This is how he recounts uh, on the 30th of January 1547. He, uh, he finds out about his father's death. After the death of King Henry VIII, his son Edward, Prince of Wales, was come to at Hertford by the Earl of Hertford and Sir Anthony Brown, Master of the Horse, for whom before was made great preparation that he might be created Prince of Wales, and afterward was brought to Enfield, where the death of his father was first showed him, and the same day the death of his father was showed in London, where was great lamentation and weeping, and suddenly he proclaimed king. 
The next day being brought to the Tower of London, where he tarried the space of three weeks. And in the mean season, the council sat every day for the performance of the will. Mm, fascinating stuff, James. Bit of deep history there. So what's going on? Well, I'm going to talk to us now about the succession of Edward VI, this boy king who succeeds when he's only nine years old, and the seizure of power by his uncle, uh, who's Earl of Hertford and becomes the Duke of Somerset, and he's known as the Lord Protector or Protector Somerset. Now, Edward is a fascinating figure, and although very young when he reigned, between the ages of, of nine and 15 when he tragically died, we do know quite a bit about him, and part of it is because of this journal that he kept. We know that he is a committed Protestant uh, with a fairly strong personality, and he wrote more than other Tudors. Uh, diaries of this kind don't survive for any of the other Tudor monarchs. And as Sam was saying, it was a an intellectual exercise devised by his tutors, in particular Sir John Cheek, who would go over every entry and check it for errors. So the king doesn't really put his real feelings in it, although occasionally there are more sort of personal remarks. For example, um, he, he disarms the Duke of Northumberland with a very sarcastic remark concerning Northumberland's role in the execution of his uncle. And also he records in it that he has fairly lengthy discussions with Archbishop Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, about why heretics needed to be burned and why he was against it. We also know a good deal about his early education. He was taught geography and government and history and French and German and Greek and Latin. In other words, all of those useful classical subjects that would have been really part and parcel of his training as a young prince. In other words, it was equipping him to be able to govern as a ruler of the kingdom. He was also given cultural lessons in things like etiquette and fencing and horseback riding and music, which were part of the sort of gentlemanly pursuits that would have been part of education of the aristocracy and the social elite during the 16th century. He was also taught among a series of other people. What they did was more or less create a sort of almost a, an exclusive palace school for him to attend with a range of other leading nobles, including people like Henry Brandon, the young Duke of Suffolk, Lord Henry Hastings, Robert Dudley, who of course crops up in Elizabeth uh, I's reign, uh, and even his cousin, Lady Jane Grey, who we'll hear a little bit more about later on. His tutors were Protestant. Uh, unlike his father, he had very little interest in, in sports and he much preferred intellectual pastime. So maybe he inherited that from his grandfather, Henry VII. Um, the important thing is that he is brought up as a Protestant, you know, and think about who his sisters are, his half-sisters. We've got Mary, who becomes Mary I, who was 31 at the time when he took over. She was a Catholic, the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, and also his other half-sister, Elizabeth, Princess Elizabeth, who was 14 years old, the daughter of Anne Boleyn, who was brought up in this reformist, Protestant-leaning tradition. So there we are. We've got this young boy on the throne. Now, 
The problem is he's in his minority. He's unable to rule in his own right, as Sam has already said. So what we have is a period of minority rule. And this is often seen as a period of of the mid-Tudor crisis um, that historians have talked about. The real problems in this mid-Tudor period is you have a boy king and you have you have female rulers and and there were problems associated with that. But what I want to talk about now is the need for a protector and the way in which Protector Somerset comes into power. Now, the thing is, this all relates to Henry VIII's will. And according to statutes of Parliament, Henry VIII wasn't able to name the protector that he wanted. Instead, his last will, which is dated the 30th of December, 1546, appointed 16 executors to carry out government and care of the of the young king. Now, there's all sorts of debate about whether or not Henry VIII's will was tampered with or not, and what the king's precise wishes were, but I don't want to talk about that here. The important thing is the decision of the meeting of all of these executors of Henry VIII's will on the 31st of January, 1547, where they agreed to make Edward Seymour, Earl of Hertford, who became the Duke of Somerset, um, Lord Protector. And he is Edward VI's maternal uncle. And they write, We therefore, the Archbishop and others whose names be hereto subscribed by one whole assent, concord and agreement upon mature consideration of the tenderness and proximity of blood between our sovereign lord that now is and the said Earl of Hertford being his uncle, have given unto him the first and chief place amongst us and also the name and title of the protector of all the realms and dominions of the king's majesty that now is and of the governor of his most royal person with this special and express condition that he shall not do any act but with the advice and consent of the rest of the co-executors in such manner, order and form as in the said will of our said late sovereign lord and most gracious master is appointed and prescribed which the said earl has promised to perform accordingly. So there we are, we have him set up and Sam is now going to talk us through the rule of Protector Somerset. He's a fascinating guy, Protector Somerset. I mean, he's often referred to as the good duke, but he's far from modest or self-effacing and um, historical opinion of him has very much changed over the last few years and he's now rather frowned upon. He, he certainly has a, a, a keen interest in money. He's, he's acquisitive, I think that's the word to describe him. He acquires a great deal of, of, of things for himself whenever he can. He's, he's certainly a soldier, a man. He's a military man, a man of action. He was knighted on the field when Henry invaded France in 1523. Um, he'd served in Henry's council. He was certainly well liked by the dead king and he probably earned Henry's respect through these military exploits in France in the early years, in the first quarter of the 16th century. So by 1547, he certainly has a reputation as a fine soldier, having been known to have seen action and performed well. He becomes warden of the Scottish marches. At the time, this is a very important job. It was a very violent era. It's the, this is the Anglo-Scottish border, the, 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 the area between Scotland and England. During the late medieval and early modern period, it was really characterised by violence 
and cross-border raids, particularly so during this period. Um, Seymour's actually was responsible for the sacking of Edinburgh Castle in 1544. This was part of Henry's war with Scotland to force a marriage alliance between Mary, Queen of Scots, and Edward VI, who were then aged one and six, respectively. Henry's essentially made a bid for the Scottish throne by betrothing his son to to Mary, the young Scottish princess. And it was agreed at the Treaty of Greenwich in 1543. But the treaty was broken by the Scots. And then it was arranged that Mary would actually marry the the prince, the Dauphin, the prince of France. Nonetheless, uh, Seymour is there. He's very much involved in what's going on in Scotland. He's in the front line of the war between England and Scotland. We also know he was a great spender. He spent huge amounts of money on jewellery and plate and buildings as well. And he was also a gambler. He held power between 1547 and 1549, so just a short period. Um, But it it wasn't um, unthreatened. But his main rival was actually his brother, Thomas, um, who did his best to uh, increase his own influence by secretly marrowing Henry's widow, Catherine Parr. So there's a definite threat coming from within his own family there. The war doesn't go very well, and after his the punishment raid and the sacking of Edinburgh, uh, well, the English are victorious at one battle, the Battle of Pinkie, but then Somerset does nothing for months. This is after 1547. They win this battle, then he doesn't do anything, and that allows the Scottish to secure... French support, which is exactly what they did. So when they've got French support, um, the, uh, Mary marries the Dauphin uh, Francis, uh, the Prince of France, and that means that the French then join up with the Scottish. The French send a large army to Scotland, cutting off the isolated British garrisons. The French are also besieging Boulogne. And this alliance with the Scots between France and Scotland Uh, really makes things very difficult indeed for the English and for Somerset because he's now fighting a war on two fronts, which would be very, very costly indeed. Um, Because they're fighting that war, Somerset also has to balance relations between England and the other major presence on the uh, on the continent, which is the Holy Roman Empire. Um, And that includes making sure that Mary Tudor, who's actually the, the emperor's aunt, Charles V's aunt, is not uh, persecuted for her religious beliefs. So Somerset's a Protestant, but he needs to uh, very much make certain that that Catholics, and particularly Mary Tudor, are given, um, given a fair run of things. It was a real balancing act, and he was really not very good at it. His style of government was very personal. He used his own household officials, um, excluding a number of leading nobles. He issues proclamations all the time, in fact, more than any other Tudor king. He was very stubborn as well as trying to do things his own way with his own mates basically running it. Um, And it's generally considered that he doesn't show the diplomatic skill and certainly not the leadership that was actually necessary at the time. And, you know, a very troubling time with the absence of an adult monarch. Um, So arrogant, high minded um, and very much someone who who wants to do things his own way. He really struggles with the finances. He's trying to raise money as quickly as he can. He doesn't think long term. He's fighting fires. He's trying to deal with the Scottish, trying to deal with the French. And he does that by by raising money without a a decent financial plan. So uh, it ends up being uh, 
the economy gets troubled very much by inflation. So prices are rising, rising and wages are remaining the same. There's a real problem with homelessness and with poverty in both the towns and the countryside. Um, he falls eventually. The other members of the Privy Council get fed up with him. They don't like his haughty conduct. They don't like the way that he restricts access to Edward. They also increasingly doubt his competence with the way that war is going with France and with Scotland. And there's essentially a coup and they move against him. Uh, Somerset takes Edward to Windsor Castle, uh, but it leaves the Privy Council in control of London. When he sees how isolated he was, he resigns power. And then um, there's a, a, a fight between the various factions and who else is going to to um, to take control. Uh, there's a conservative group and then there's a, a smaller group of Protestants and they're led by someone called John Dudley. Um, Dudley manages to gain a great deal of influence over Edward VI, posing as a sincere Protestant by playing to Edward's vanity, by treating this child as if he was already the king. And that means that in 1550, Dudley becomes the Lord President of the Council and the effective ruler of England. Oh, very good. Let me pick up the story there. So this John Dudley is the Duke of Northumberland and he's the man who is in control um, of the country after this. And he's a very sort of wily figure and is really able to manipulate not only Edward VI, but also Thomas Cranmer. And he's able to get at the king through Cranmer. Um, he's able to ally himself with the Conservatives on the council and then later jettisons them to sort of have power uh, himself. Now, he's got a really difficult situation because all the things that Sam's been talking about, the sort of turbulence of these first few years of Edward VI's reigns, are now on his plate to deal with. We've got expensive wars with France and Scotland. And what he does here is he signs the Treaty of Boulogne in 1550, ending the war with France and what we have is an Anglo-French alliance and of course the Holy Roman Empire uh, doesn't want this it's something that they see as, as as particularly dangerous for them. In religious policy what we've seen in the first few years of Edward VI's reign is a move towards a much more severe uh, reformist outlook in religion. In other words, we move away from the Catholicism um, of the uh, period of, of Henry VIII, you know, with the, the break of Rome, and then the the, um, the the move towards Protestantism is ratcheted up under under uh, Protector Somerset and then under uh, under the Duke of Northumberland as well. And we have these reformist prayer books, the Book of Common Prayer, introduced in 1549 under Somerset, Protector Somerset, and it is reissued in 1552 under Northumberland. So Northumberland reintroduces the 1552 Book of Common Prayer, which is reissued alongside a second act of uniformity. In other words, what they're trying to do is to make people in the country be reformist, more Protestant in their religion. Now, the priority for Northumberland is basically peace during this period. He wants a sort of period of stabilisation and he seeks to have control over the Privy Council. One of the big things that he does is he sends the Lord Lieutenants 
out from the council into the localities. These are the sort of leading military figures. And what that means is you've then got government executive members administering in the regions of the kingdom. Now, what happens is that Edward VI dies, still only 15. He falls ill with tuberculosis. And the difficulty is what's going to happen next now, we know that Princess Mary, if she became queen, according to Henry VIII's will, would return England to Catholicism. And Northumberland was not a Catholic and therefore wouldn't succeed very well under Mary's, under Mary's rule. And so what he does is they tamper with Edward VI's will. Edward VI's will had left it um, to Lady Jane Grey's mother, and what Northumberland does is he revives Lady Jane Grain's own uh, claim to the throne because she's married to his son, Guilford Dudley. And when Edward dies on the 6th of July, 1553, Northumberland proclaims Lady Jane Grey Queen of England. And nearly all the court and politicians accept Lady Jane Grey as queen. Her claims are fairly good. She's a descendant of... Henry VII. However, Mary Tudor is the legitimate ruler according to Henry VIII's will. Mary Tudor goes off to Norfolk, she gathers her forces, and very slowly, over a series of days, the people who accepted Lady Jane Grey as Queen slowly move over to um, move over to support Mary and Northumberland's plan fails. Northumberland is arrested, he's tried, and he's later beheaded as a traitor. So there we are, Sam, uh, a whistle-stop tour mm. of the reign of Edward VI. Yeah, you don't want to be an uncle around that period, do you? It's just all, all you certainly dangerous. don't, no. <laughs> what about a quiz, Sam? Yes, James, great idea, a quiz. OK, number one, how old was Edward VI when he became king, and in which year was he crowned? Number two, what did Henry VIII's will say about the succession? Number three, who was Protector Somerset? Ooh. Number four, what were the chief characteristics of the rule of Protector Somerset? Why did Somerset fall from power? That's number five. And number six, who was the Duke of Northumberland? Ah, some good stuff here, James. And do we have a task for everyone? We do have a little task, and this is inspired by our opening example of Edward VI's journal. So the task is to imagine that you were Edward VI, and we would like you to write a journal for a day in the life of the young king. Well, I hope you guys enjoy doing that. When you've got a bit of time, do please follow us on social media. You can find us all over the place on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. I'm at Dr Sam Willis. And I am at James Daybell, and the podcast is at Unexpected Pod. We also have a website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, and if you're interested in homeschooling, uh, go there and check out all the homeschooling episodes. If you're not interested in homeschooling, go and have a look at our back catalogue, because it has 220-odd episodes for you rambling around the past, like a, like a bull in a china shop. <laughs> <laughs> they ramble they tootle around that's all for now guys thank you so much indeed for listening be in touch soon bye 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 guys <laughs> <laughs>